Well, obviously that uh, video uh, keeps talking about our aspirations for next year. We picked that like a week ago. So that's for this year, 2021. That's our desire to watch God um, continue to work and continue to bring um, healing uh, and revival to his world from this uh, pandemic that we're still in from 2020. Uh, I will encourage you with this, though. Uh, it would be disingenuous to say 2020 was a fantastic year. And yet, it was the year God gave us, right? It was the year God allowed to pass through His sovereign control into our lives. And we did learn some things. I'll say more about that in just a minute. Um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Um, Matthew chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible with you, or maybe you uh, want to turn there on your device, you can go ahead and be finding that. How many of you love New Year's Eve? Anybody out there like me? I love New Year's Eve. Anybody in here? No? Two of you? Three? Yeah, I love New Year's Eve. It's uh, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day is probably my favorite holiday every year. I know I should say Christmas or Easter, but that would not be true. Uh, it's New Year's Eve or, or New Year's Day, that, that 24-hour, 36-hour period there where we begin to amp up toward a new year and then anchor in that new year and celebrate it uh, are exciting to me. And not just me. It's the largest party time globally that we have every year. New Year's Eve, uh, even in our, just our nation, makes the Super Bowl look like a four-year-old's birthday party. It's massive. People celebrate all across the world, across all continents, from Moscow to Rio, from New York to Tokyo and Paris, Johannesburg, all around the globe. People gather together. And they sing, and they shout, and they watch, and they laugh, and they talk, and they celebrate, and they shoot off fireworks. Anybody watch the ball drop this year? Well, i got to work on you guys. we got some lame people in here. We're going to work on our New Year's Eve celebration this year. Yeah, maybe the ball drop is not your thing. Hopefully you did something. Like if you ate oatmeal and went to bed at 6, we're going to work on you this next year. So... So New Year's Eve has been celebrated uh, in Times Square since 1904. And in 1906-07, they changed from live fireworks, which the New York City Fire Department deemed to be um, hazardous to the health of the buildings uh, in New York City as the ash fell down everywhere, to a version of the ball drop that we see today. And it's been there consecutively ever, ever since that time. There, there's something inside of us as human beings that's drawn to celebration, that's drawn to reflection toward the end of a year, toward the beginning of a new year. I think it's the hope that a new year will bring new opportunities, new possibilities, maybe new change and transformation that we know needs to happen in us. And we got to the end of the year and maybe we're looking back and we're not exactly who we know we're called to be or who we most desire to be. There's something innate in the human condition that yearns for this. That's why it's celebrated across all demographics, all socioeconomic lines, all cultural lines, all ethnicities, all races, all nations. People that can are coming together on that night of the year. I ran across an article um, this week in Parent Q. Parent Q is the app uh, for parents that goes along with uh, Orange, the, the curriculum and system that we have. Uh, for children and so I was looking at that and the article was entitled 20 things we learned in 2020 by uh, a lady named Holly Crawshaw who actually lives in Cummings Georgia not far 
um, not far from here. And I was intrigued by this. Uh, as I said, I, I love New Year's Eve. It's a reminder to me, I think, um, year in and year out, as God grants us uh, January 1st again and again, that God really is a God of new beginnings. He's a God of fresh starts. He's a God of do-overs and of grace and of mercy. And in this article, I won't read all 20, but I'll just highlight a few of them um, that the author noted that were some things we learned through 2020. One is that we're more resourceful than we think. We figured out what to do when there was no toilet paper in the stores. And maybe no toilet paper at home. I don't know your story. We learned how to adapt. We learned how to function when kids came home from school mid-semester. That was terrifying in our home. All of a sudden, they were just all there. Wives, it's like a husband who's usually at work, and then he's not. It's like, why are you around all the time right now? Right? We learned that we're more resourceful. We learned that everything can shift overnight, didn't we? Now, we know this cognitively, but we don't think it really will, but it did. It shifted worldwide, and it's affected every single sector of human society, every domain of life, education and business and medicine, nonprofits and churches, not just in our nation, but in nations around the world. We learned that things can shift in an instant and that we have to be adaptive and flexible. And suddenly, many of us learned that our stuff didn't matter as much as our people did. Any of you feel in 2020 that in some ways you were compelled to draw closer to family and closer to friends? That maybe you were a little emotionally freed, at least a little emotionally freer from some of your stuff? We also learned that we need community, didn't we? I mean, everybody was excited for that like first two or three weeks off in March last year. Like, oh, look at this. Everything shut down, right? Everything shut down. We, we walked in our neighborhood and met neighbors for the first time. And we were not the only ones who got out. Oh, you're all like, hi, hi. It doesn't last, but it's fun for a little while. You're talking, it's like Halloween, the one night a year where we all pretend like we love one another and know one another. You're all out walking. The, if, this is if you've got kids. If you've got kids, you're all out walking and talking like you don't do the rest of the year. But we learned we need community. We're hungry for it. We started Zoom groups. No one loves Zoom groups, right? But they're better than nothing. It's like payday as a candy bar. It's not fantastic, but it beats nothing at all. Zoom was fun in the beginning, wasn't it? It was novel and new, and that lasted about a month. But it was something, and it was a way to engage and to have community. We saw neighborhood meetups. Saw people gathering outside on their driveways, socially distanced. But just having an opportunity to visit and to talk, we remembered that friends matter. There were a couple, though, that the author listed that really got my attention. She said, we learned we can stay home. We learned we can stay home. And this particular woman is a mom of three little kiddos, so she's running around all the time. And she said this, I learned that I don't have to book my calendar until it bursts. In fact, I shouldn't. Is she the only one in 2020 that might have been suffering some from hurry sickness? Maybe working 
more than was necessary, running more than was healthy. Last one I'll mention. She said we learned we can't actually do it all. That's disturbing to us as Americans. We can't do it all, but we can't. You can't have it all. But we typically would like to do it all and have it all now. But we can't. Every yes is a no to something else. Whether or not we realize that. She said this. She said, I'm a chronic overextender. Can anyone else relate to this? I can relate to this for sure. She's a chronic overextender. But with the onset of the pandemic... I was suddenly taking on even more new roles. Any of you that were working when 2020 hit and everything shifted found that though you might have been at home, you weren't working less. You were working more in many, many ways. Because you were adapting for so many different things. It didn't take long for me to realize that as much as I want to do it all, I am not a very good teacher slash mother slash writer slash house cleaner slash chef, slash playdate planner, slash dry cleaner, slash seamstress, slash cheer coach, slash PTO member, slash friend. I actually need help on occasion, quarantine or not. That doesn't make me a failure, it makes me human. We learned a lot through 2020. And for many of us, for many of us, one of the things that we learned, one of the major ones that we learned is that we were living with a pace that was unhealthy, and unsustainable and if we're going to experience experience something different in our relationships something different in our marriages something different in our homes and our families something different in our relationship with God and the way that God uses us this year than we experienced last last year we're going to have to address this issue because many of us live consistently with no space, no margin, and no breathing room. Now, you may be like, hey, i got tons of breathing room. Like, you know, we're still largely at home. I've got so much breathing room, I'm bored. And yet so many people still feel exhausted. Isn't that weird? So many people still report being tired and fatigued and exhausted as their primary emotions, primary ways that they feel day in and day out physically because i'll tell you you can be home and still not create breathing room and space because we have an, a unique ability to fill our days to the max with all kinds of things let me just define what i mean by breathing space or margin whatever you want to put there breathing space is the space between our current pace and our limitations it's the space between our current pace and our limitations. Now, some of you aren't feeling the pinch right now, but by mid-spring you will be. By mid-spring you'll be running everywhere and wondering why you've returned to that same kind of living. And I ask myself why we tend to live this way and why we tend to return to this over and over and over and over. And the short answer is that behind our unsustainable pace and our unwillingness to live with margin and breathing room consistently is simply this. It's fear. It's fear. Next week we're going to kick off a four-week series called Fearless. 
And in that series, we're going to try to understand and to grab hold of how it is that we move from fear-based living to faith-based living. And that's not just a statement. That's not just verbiage that rolls there. One of the things that I've realized as I listen to people throughout this last year is that so many of the decisions that we make are rooted not in faith, but in fear. It's subconscious, and it's under the surface. But so much of what we decide to do or decide not to do, if we could trace it back and we were reflective and thoughtful, we'd find it rooted in fear. And God's not called us to live that way. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6 at just a few verses that will be familiar to most of you this morning. We're not going to dive deep into this because later this year we're going to do a series through the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to save um, this passage for that kind of treatment for that time. Um, I love to, to do expository preaching by and large most of the time. This morning's going to be a little more topical. But you can relax if you actually study the teaching of Jesus and teaching of Paul. That's actually how they taught. That's how they preach. So uh, we're in good hands with God this morning. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6. And just read verses 31 through 33. Do not worry. If we stop there, can I just tell you, this is imperative from our Lord. This is actually a command from Jesus. He says, choose not to worry. Anybody find that much easier to say or nod your head to than to live out in practice day in and day out? Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Let me pull this in to this morning for us. Do not worry saying, how will we pay for this? What's going to happen when they leave our home? What's going to happen with my health if I lose my current insurance? You can go on and on and on and on with this. What's going to happen with my son or my son-in-law, my daughter or my daughter-in-law now that they've lost their job do not worry verse 32 for the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them jesus says that kind of of anxiety-based fear-based living is how godless people live it's just a, a straight street interpretation of what he's saying there godless people they, they're always striving always pushing always running always worrying They can't help but allow their days to be filled and fueled by anxiety. But you're not to be that kind of people. You are a different kind of people. Verse 33, he says, But instead of that kind of living, rather than living this way, live this way. Seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus is saying when he says all these things, he's not strictly only speaking of food to eat, water to drink, and clothes to wear. He's saying the mental, emotional, and physical needs that you have, God will meet as your good and just and gracious and generous heavenly father if you will seek him 
above those things. If you will seek, when, when we seek to live for His kingdom and His righteousness, what Jesus is saying here is that we live for God's name and not our own. We live for God's glory and not ours. We live to make His name great. We embrace, as the psalmist said and spoke about, God's law as something that is good and pure and right and just. And we meditate on it. And we trust the goodness of God behind His word teaching us how to live. But so often, that's not what fuels our decisions, is it? It is so often fear. Fear of what happens if I do this instead of this. Fear of what this person thinks if I decide this or that. Fear of what will happen if I say what I really feel. Let me just throw out three types of fear that I think fuel our inability to live in rhythm. Have you noticed, we talked a little bit about this weeks ago, that God created his world with a rhythm, right? Seasons follow one another predictively. Night follows day and day follows night. Sun up and sunset. Even with lighting changes, it's dark and then it's light. And then it's dark again. There's a consistency and a rhythm that we're called to live with. And when we don't live with it, if most of us are honest, we'll say it's fear. It, one, is fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. FOMO is real, y'all. FOMO is real. Fear of missing out. Now, I struggle a little bit with this myself in a different way. I, I fear missing out on the adventure, right? Um, Sharon often pokes at me because she says, it's not just good enough for you to want to visit everywhere. You want to live everywhere. And I do. Not everywhere. I don't want to live in Louisiana. But most other places around the U.S. and most places around the world, I'm, I'm up for a good three or four year stint, two or three years. Some places I can live much longer. They're enjoyable and fun to live. But I, I want, my, my nature feels like, what am I missing out by not experiencing different cultures, by not experiencing different places, by not meeting new people? But I, I want to tell you where, where fear of missing out drives us to live with an unhealthy pace and one that is not God-honoring. That's what I, I don't want you to miss, that living that way consistently is sinful. Right? It's rebellious toward God. Now, there's a time to put on your big boy or big girl pants, put your belt on, and do some heavy lifting, right? There are seasons that you're going to have to lean into at work. And they're going to be hard, and they may be a little bit long, but they shouldn't be normal. They shouldn't be normal. Um, sometimes this fear of missing out manifests like itself like this. We feel like if we're coming into work, if we're not the first ones in and the last ones out, if we're not the one agreeing to do everything, regardless of whether or not we know that falls within the scope of our job description, that somehow we're going to miss out on a promotion or we're not going to be noticed by our boss or our supervisor, we're not going to be thought of as hardworking. We'll be thought of as lazy. And so it drives us and pushes us, sometimes to the point of harming those closest to us. Maybe it's with your kids, Right? Maybe some of you are at the parent age and, and you've got kids, or maybe you were and you can think back to how real this is, and this just gets crazier, it seems like right now, every year. 
Maybe your kid loves baseball, so you're like, I got to get him all the baseball stuff I can. Right? I got to get him on creatine in kindergarten. I got to get a special coach and instructor for him by first grade because they're going to be the next star, next professional athlete. And then they're, they're only moderately into baseball, and maybe they're into something else after that. And so you just add that, and then they're into something else. And you, you can go out. It could be music, art, cheerleading. And you're like, I got to have the best, and we've got to get them on the best teams, and we've got to make sure they're doing travel ball. And all of a sudden, you're stretched so thin that you're just one more commitment away from snapping. And you're not actually experiencing life. You're being run by your events. Fear of missing out. There's also the fear of falling behind. The fear of falling behind. This is an interesting one as I think about it. This is really the fear of not keeping up with the Joneses. And I don't mean Dusty and Amy. Right? It's fear of not keeping up with the Joneses. You guys know what I mean by that. It's not having the biggest, newest toys, the iPhone 360, or whatever the newest one is. It's not having the biggest, nicest house, the nicest clothes, the nicest cars. As I was thinking about this this week, I thought, fear of falling behind. Falling behind what? Falling behind who? I get to have conversations with the Joneses. Again, not Dusty and Amy. I'm going to keep clarifying that. And I'll tell you something about trying to keep up with the Joneses. The truth about the Joneses is they're broke, tired, and stressed out. They've got nice vehicles, and you know what they have with them? Big payments. They've got nice houses. You know what they have with their nice houses? Big house payments. They take great vacations. You know what they put most of those vacations on? Credit cards. They're broke, tired, and stressed out. Stressed out from always trying to live for the approval of other people. Friends, if you live for the approval of others, you will live a miserable life. And social media makes it even worse. Because someone's always going to be more successful, stronger, faster, prettier than you are on social media. But we have this fear of falling behind. The truth about the Joneses is that they're living with no margin, no breathing room. They look really good on the outsides, but inside, it's a mess. Big hat, no cattle. Kind of the Texas phrase. There's really nothing underneath it. Fear of missing out, fear of falling behind. Third and last one I'll mention this morning is the fear of being insignificant. The fear of being insignificant, the fear of not mattering drives so much human activity. And I struggle with this. I want my life to count. And it's hard for me just to rest in the faithfulness of God and say, that's enough. That is enough. But we have this drive. Part of our human brokenness is this drive inside to prove ourselves, to justify our existence. It manifests itself this way in the belief that more actually equals significance. Just once I want to say, hey, what have you been up to? And have somebody say, nothing really. <laughs> nothing at all. I spent this entire week eating whatever I wanted to and watching Netflix. Now that shouldn't be their, uh, their lifestyle year-round. And some of you may need a reverse message. You may need to hear God say, it's time for you to go to work. Because God has a very high view of human labor. We are to be a working people. 
right? But our, our cultural bent, the normative way in which we sin and destroy ourselves in our nation, right? We're not Western Europe. In our nation is not by underworking, it's by overworking. We lean into it so much. And I'll tell you this, some of you are still living decades, decades into adulthood trying to impress your mom and dad. Some of you, may, your, your dad may have passed away years ago, but because of one thing he said on a particular day that he shouldn't have said, you're still trying to prove yourself to him. Maybe it's not your dad, maybe it's your mom, who you were never good enough for. Whatever you did, you never measured up. And so you've been living all of your adult life subconsciously trying to prove your significance to your mom. Maybe it's to show that coach who never played you how awesome you are now. Whatever it is, these fears are real. And I want to give you three quick antidotes that we find in the Old Testament that God gives us, and Jesus sort of is summarizing a form of, in Matthew 6 and throughout the Sermon on the Mount. God gives us the Sabbath, he gives us the tithe, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and he gives us gleaning laws. Gleaning laws. Let me say a, a, a quick word about each one of those. Sabbath is familiar to most of you. It's a, a, a day of rest in our weekly rhythm. Sabbath was God's teaching that, look, you work six and you take one off. On six, off one. Now, most of you are like, man, I'm doing good. I'm, in fact, I'm on five, off two. So I'm like a Sabbath all-star. But most of us are not intentional about that off time. We don't really disconnect from normal rhythms. We may not be vocationally working, but we're filling it with all kinds of other things, and I think we miss the understanding of why God has given us this tremendous gift. He says something about this in Deuteronomy chapter 5 as he's restating the Ten Commandments, Moses is. Deuteronomy 5 verse 15 says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is about freedom, friends. Sabbath is God's gift to remind you that you're no longer slaves. It is intended to be a break so that you can remember that God has set you free. And we should experience it on a whole different level now. We've not just been freed from physical slavery. We've been set free from the slavery and the bondage of sin having the last say in our lives. We live with the power of the Holy Spirit present in us, sanctifying us as we walk cooperatively with His work in our lives. We're no longer slaves. We've been freed from Christ. We don't have to fear missing out on this or missing out on that. And we only really still that voice when we practice Sabbath. And we allow God to calm us and remind us that we don't have to live with this frantic pace that we have been set free. We don't have to live with this fear of missing out. We're children of the King. He also gave us the tithe. I won't go into this deeply um, because we talked a lot about it a couple of weeks ago. If you're unfamiliar with the tithe with this concept, tithe simply means 10%. It's just a giving back of the first 10% each time we're paid 
to God through our local church. It's a, a way of setting aside a portion that belongs to God and saying, I trust you. You're more to me than the things you provide. You've given me everything that just came in. I'm setting this 10% aside for you. Many of you took the tithe challenge. Some of you took the 1% giving challenge. Like you're already tithers. You already faithfully give at that percentage, but you committed to give a, a 1% more through this year. We'll be following up with you this week. We decided like follow up right before Christmas is probably useless. So now that we'll be rolling into January, you'll be getting emails and packets for those of you that took that. But again, I just want to remind you that with tithing, it's about what God wants for you, not from you. Right? If God creates everything from nothing, does he need anything from you? I use this illustration sometimes, but it's like when your kids are little and they come to you and they, want to, they, they, they need some money so they can buy you a birthday present. You're like, why don't I just keep my money and we'll call it even? Right? This is all we're doing, but it's not because God needs it. It's because we need it. And it stills this fear of falling behind, of other people getting ahead of us. When, when we tithe faithfully, we say no to that kind of living. I don't have to take everything that I get and use it for me. Sabbath is for your good. Tithing is for your good. God's drawing you deeper into levels of trust and worship and love. He's teaching us through it that he will provide. So he gives us Sabbath, he gives us a tithe, but I want to say a word about gleaning laws because that's going to be newer for some of us. Let me, um, let me pull from Leviticus here. I know a book that most of you are reading devotionally right now. Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. Let me just say uh, in short, gleaning, gleaning is the practice of going and picking up in a harvest setting whatever has dropped, whatever has been lost through the regular harvesting process so that you've got it all. But God says his people are to be a different kind of people. Listen to Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field. Or gather the gleanings of your harvest, those things that drop during the normal, normal harvesting process. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner or the immigrant. And then he says, I am the Lord your God. What's he saying here? He's saying you are to be a different kind of people. Your trust is not in harvesting to the very edge, getting everything that you can get and believing somehow that that's going to make your life matter, that's going to make you significant. Your trust is in me. I'm your provider. I am your Lord. He goes over this again um, through David in Deuteronomy 24, as David again is restating the law for the people of God, keeping it fresh in front of them. He says, Again, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, beginning with verse 19, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf. Now, I know that most of you aren't harvesting in your fields and overlooking sheaves right now. Right? I'm going to modernize this in just a second. Do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. So that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. 
When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Look at verse 22. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. God says that there's something tied up in our hearts. There's a connection between us trying to go so hard that we get everything we can and our lack of understanding that we've been delivered by God. That when we're able to say, I don't have to have it all, my significance, whether or not my life matters, does not consist in how hard I run at it, how much I make, how much I accomplish, how great my kids are at everything they do. Here, here's a, here's a, a modern-day picture of the gleaning laws. Imagine you were paid in cash every single time, and you had to go pick up the cash, and they just handed it to you in wads. And as you're walking out, some, some bills fall. God says, leave them for the poor. I'm going to take care of you. He's saying, if you'll follow me in obedience and stop trying to wring as much as you can get out of everything, I'm going to bless and multiply what you are doing. Friends, we can never make up with our own energy and our own labor and our own pace what God can and will and desires to do in our lives. Now, some of you, let's be honest, a dollar bill or two, a $5 bill, heaven forbid, a 20 drops, it's going to be against everything in your nature to keep walking. Right? I wish we, I wish we were free enough. We'll get there. We're going to get there. Free enough to do hands on this. But, I mean, some of you can't walk past a penny. Right? you got to pick that up because you might need that one day. And I'm not just talking about the generations that lived through the Great Depression. Right, I get their PTSD. Straightening out used nails and things like that. I understand where that's rooted from. Some of you are like, man, I, I can pass a penny, but if it shines, like if it's got any silver to it, if it's a dime, if it's a nickel, if it's a quarter, I'll run out in front of traffic to get it. God's saying, I've given you these gifts for your good. If you look back at Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus says, don't live like pagans do, in verse 32, we find this really powerful phrase. He says, your heavenly Father knows. Can I just say whatever you feel most deeply that you need this morning and right now, and whatever it is that you know you need today, this week, tomorrow, this year, God knows. Your heavenly Father knows. And if you remember from the Old Testament, when, when God lets us know that He knows something, He's not just saying He's cognitively aware, He's saying He's getting ready to act. He's seen, He's heard, He's aware. And that's what Jesus is saying. God knows, and He is ever providing for you. Let me teach you just a couple of words that are going to help you this year. 
one, and this one will be terribly freeing to you. It's the word no. No. Now we giggle softly in here. But some of us have an extremely hard time saying it. You know that no is a complete sentence? No. Hey, would you mind volunteering? Not when we ask you at church. You're just say yes to that. But other places, places of lesser significance, when they say, hey, would you mind doing this out of the other? You can just say, no, thank you. You don't have to say no, but I'm really a good person. I volunteered with the Salvation Army back in December for two hours. You can just say no. It's a complete sentence. Parents, no is a complete sentence to your kids. And if they continue to ask, just continue with that complete sentence. No, 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 no. Eventually, they're going to stop. All right? Let me give you one other. This one will not only set you free, it will make your marriage better if you're married this morning. All right? It's four words, so it's technically a phrase. I can't afford it. I can't afford it. Do you know that saying that doesn't say anything about your worth and value as a human being? Right? I can't afford it. That's such a freeing statement. In fact, if we were a little more lively this morning, we might practice all saying that. Now, here's what you're saying sometimes. Sometimes you're not saying, I don't mean I don't have the cash to buy that or go there. I'm saying I have a different value set. You with me? There are different things I want to do with my money. I can't afford it. It's a very freeing phrase. Sometimes we say that to our children. And they say, we have no money. Oh, no, we have money. Well, actually, you don't have any money. But your mother and I have money. But we don't want to spend it on that thing, and we wouldn't have it if we kept doing this, right? We're a family of seven now, so it's like we have to bring buckets of money with us when we go out to eat. Suddenly, Going out to fast food is like a $60, $70 affair. Uh, And our grocery bill is astronomical. I don't know what happens to kids in their preteen and teen years, but they become famished and are constantly raiding pantries. Little pantry raiders is what we have at home. If you can learn no and I can't afford it this year, you can't imagine how God honors that. And I'm being serious here. How God honors you being a steward of your finances and your time. Because truthfully, neither of these belong to you. Part of what's going on in Scripture, when we see the phrase, greater, has, greater love has no man than that he lay his life down for a friend, that reference is, is actually referring to the act of Christ on the cross. Because here's the thing, my life doesn't belong to me. It's going to be taken from me sooner or later, one way or the other. It's just a matter of time. Jesus is the only one who's ever laid his life down for another voluntarily. Like, I might give my life for you today, but it didn't matter because I was going to give it up next year or 10 years from now or 40 years from now anyway. All right? God blesses the stewardship of time he's given you and stewardship of finances he's given you when you learn to say no and I can't afford it. Let's finish with this. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. The author of Hebrews says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from His. 
the rest that God's offering here is not just a Sabbath rest in eternity. It's a rest that he offers you now in Christ through the victory of Christ, through the fullness and the finality and the completeness of the work of Christ that allows you to cease all the striving, that reminds you day in and day out, wow, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm in Christ. And as one in Christ, I truly have no one left to impress and nothing left to prove. There's a Sabbath rest that's available for me in God as one who is in Christ. And it's more about the inner stillness of my heart than the outer stillness of my body. It allows me to live differently. We're made for purpose. Don't hear me saying we're not. We're made to work. You see that from the littlest kids. Friday I was taking the trash out and Zane, one of our two-year-old toddlers, Zane said, I help which is a complete sentence for a two-year-old. I help, and he walks along, and he's holding the back of the trash bag, sort of, and we go out and we take out the trash can together. And he was so delighted that he was helping. We're made for purpose. Now, something about original sin mars that through the teen years. Um, so they, they lose the joy of, of wanting to participate significantly in household chores. But you, you see this desire, so don't hear me saying we're not made for that. But it's quite often the case that you and I don't do something, we overdo something. And our sin drives us to live with the kinds of paces that, is, that are destroying us right now. I had a little conversation with Sharon at home yesterday that kind of came out of my thinking and meditating on this. And she hit me upside the face with a two-by-four of truth about this issue in my own life. And its effect on those closest to me. So this is real for me as I know it is for many of you. And if it's not right now, would you pray for the rest of us that it's a real issue with? Would you pray for every young family in our church who I know this is an issue with? Pray for the homes that struggle to find health and balance and the rhythm that God intends us to live with. Let's stand and pray this morning.